You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, in your mercies, you have fed us this morning so richly, and we're grateful. Um, We come into this place every week reminded that you have faced death and you've conquered it, you've risen from the dead, and you meet us with these gifts of grace that we experience as we worship together. We hear your word proclaimed, we're reminded of the good news of the gospel about who we are, miserable offenders who've been spared and and who've been loved on by the deep and rich mercies of God, and you lift our hearts in song and music. It's, it's, it's a gift that you give us every week, and we're grateful. And Lord, now for the teaching that's uh, for the, in this morning hour, both in this class and all around our, our campus here, Lord, will you bless us as we enter into your word, open our hearts and our minds to perceive and understand what it is you're teaching us in your word, and give us the humility, Lord, uh, to enter into it by your grace. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, before I get into this this morning, we're in Luke 12 today. This is the class on the parables, by the way. I have one Little League baseball story to tell you. <laughs> this is completely inappropriate timing. But I got, this is the, one of the funniest things. I've, I've coached now probably for five, six years. One of the funniest moments I've ever had happened yesterday. Um, we beat our nemesis in extra innings. It was awesome. It's great. I mean, the Lord is good. Um, Oscar Price, if you know Oscar, he's our scorekeeper for our team. Um, and uh, Oscar, we spared him yesterday. It was it was beautiful. He he got in a little kerfuffle with the other team over some scoring. It was Gordon. He did a beautiful job. He was wonderful. Um, big play. Ball, ball gets hit to right field. Uh, players in right field, and um, and doesn't see it. And, uh, of course, you know, coaches going berserk, including myself. Um, I'm yelling at my own son, who's playing second base. I'm like, get out there! Get it! Right. Kid gets it in the park home run. Should have never happened. It all said none. We all settled down. Look out there. This young man playing right field, who's going to be a senator someday. I love this kid to death. Um, <laughs> he's there, glove in hand, a big pile of weeds in his other hand. <laughs> He, he literally was picking weeds. Didn't even know the play was going on. It was all done. He's just standing there with his glove. Huge pile of weeds in the other hand. I I have giggled nonstop thinking about that scene. Never knew the ball was there. Just big pile of weeds in his hand. That was it was great. Good moment. Good moment. Anyhow, that has nothing to do with this morning. Martha, um, we're doing uh, the parable of the rich fool today um, in Luke chapter 12. So brace yourself um, on this one. Uh, when it comes to money and possessions, I think few topics can generate unease like these. Um, if you want to take a delightful dinner party and turn it awkward, why don't you ask somebody what they make a year? Um, it's not polite. You know, it's, it's bad manners. I, I see it, for example, even in the way in which we try to talk to our children um, and how we raise them about talking about money. It's a kind of a tricky thing how we do this. So, for example, like if during a particular budget month in the Genelette home when eating out just isn't on the docket, I'll stress to my children, we don't talk about why we're not going out to eat. Right. 
Um, or putting price tags on things in front of other people. Like, you know how much that bat costs? But I, I, stop, we don't talk that way. So we do all this with our children. And we're all very careful when it comes to talking about our money and our own possessions. This is a very delicate topic. But Jesus, on the other hand, seems to have no problem talking about his own wealth and possessions. Think about this. Foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus didn't mind, I guess, showing us his 401k. And he certainly had no problem talking about someone else's wealth or possessions. So I know I've said this before in various contexts, but the, the direct communication that we hear from Jesus of Nazareth when he talks to other people, it's startling. I mean, think about the kind of topics that Jesus had with other people. He talks, in an, admittedly, in an indirect way, he talks about sex with the woman at the well. Go get your husband. He's talking here with an unnamed man in the crowd about his wealth and being rather direct about it. Now, I should say this as an aside, and I, this, this could be a whole topic unto itself, and it won't be this morning. Um, I'm not even sure Jesus is meant to be imitated here. Um, you know, the whole sort of notion about the imitatio Christi, you know, the imitation of Christ, and uh, what would Jesus do? The great uh, novel by Sheldon about the, In His Steps, raising the question, what would Jesus do? Well, there are times when I think the answer, what would Jesus do, should be a direct confrontation of what we would do in that moment. Um, so I, I think we have to be careful about this on some level, about how we sort of take this sort of direct and indirect communication in our own relationship. But let me say this, just as an, as an aside. I do think there are occasions when Christian brothers and sisters will have to transgress the boundaries of civilized discourse with one another. And we're going to have to be able to speak frankly into our lives, about, into each other's lives, about very difficult topics. Um, there are times when, in the community of faith, we'll have to be in other people's business. Um, lots to say here, frankly. And I say this as one who, I will admit it as, as a matter of first order, I don't really like other people being in my business too much. I mean, I went through this sort of phase of early navigators kind of Christianity in my 20s where transparency was kind of the buzzword. Let's just be, let's be transparent. And now I'm kind of in a position where I would like less transparency, please. Um, I'm joking about that on some level, but um, you know, I, th this is a hard thing. And I'll just say this as another aside. Um, I do think that people who find it easy to speak into others, other people's business probably should do it less. Um, but again, this is a different topic. But the point is, within the household of faith, in careful and wise situations, pastoral situations where we're loving one another, I do think we will at times have to transgress the boundaries of normal civilized discourse and talk to one another about difficult topics like money and sex. We'll have to do that. Um, but that's a different conversation. Back uh, to ours today. Let me read this parable to you. It's one that we all know very well. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say, and this, this is a very important verse here, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, uh, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself. And I want you to remember this phrase from Jesus. This is an operative phrase in the whole parable. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. All right. So it's worth setting this, I think, in a certain kind of literary context. What's going on around Luke chapter 12? I'm becoming more convinced as I kind of bury into these parables that that uh, the context, there are things going on that provide interpretive clues. Back in chapter 11, for example, Jesus has had another very uncivil conversation with the Pharisees and the interpreters of the law. I mean, if you look back in chapter 11, you hear uh, Jesus saying things like, um, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and you ne- neglect justice and the love of God. Jesus is entering into the prophetic life of the Old Testament prophets in this moment in time. Think about, again, Micah chapter 6. With what shall we come to the Lord? Rivers of oil? Thousands of rams? Even my firstborn child? But I have shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Jesus is in some ways paraphrasing Micah chapter 6, verses uh, 6 through 8. And why shouldn't Jesus do that? He wrote Micah 6, 6 through 8. All right, I'll let you think on that. Uh, And then chapter uh, 12, uh, verses 4 through 7, Jesus speaks here about the proper object of fear and confidence that comes from knowing the Father's intimate and omniscient knowledge of us. If you look back in in chapter 12, uh, verses 4 through 7, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Because after that, what more can they do to you? But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more of value than many sparrows. Beautiful phraseology here. It's the omniscient, and by the way, omniscience um, left as a, God knows everything. Omniscience left as a category unto itself is horribly frightening. But omniscience linked to paternal intimacy, that's what we get here. Both of them at the same time. He is omniscient. He knows all things. I'm, I'm, I affirm these sort of classic categories of Christian faith. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But don't keep that in some sort of abstract category. He's omniscient, but he's the father who knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. And for some of us, that's a harder work than others, right? <laughs> but nevertheless. And then after our parable, here in chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, Jesus speaks again about not living an anxious and worrisome life. Where is our treasure? A.W. Tozer spoke of the blessedness 
of being possessed by nothing. Are our possessions ours or do our possessions own us? Jesus is leaning into this. And I imagine all of us, by the way, live in the tension of this because our possessions and what is ours, both relationally and physically and materially, this touches on so many complex facets of our faithful life before God. It, it just it gets real personal real fast, for me too. So that's what's going all, all around this parable. Now back to our parable. Someone in the crowd asked Jesus uh, to do what the judges of old did when they were settling legal disputes among the people. Jesus is asked to adjudicate a tricky uh, legal situation. And there's so much from this question that we do not know. Here it is right here in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, wouldn't you love to know more about the context of that? There is a backstory. We don't have it. Was the brother right there? Um, I mean, was the family there? Did they come for this purpose to find Jesus to adjudicate this problem for them? There's so much about this question that we do not know, but I do think it's safe to assume, especially given the fact that we're going to blink and we'll be in Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. Worth keeping that before us. We're going to blink and we'll be there. But I think it's safe to assume that this is probably a younger brother who feels that he is being slighted by his older brother. Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, the later rabbinic Mishnah, speak of the elder brother receiving a double portion of the inheritance. So this could be a question about an elder brother who will, who will not divide the inheritance or will not give any of the inheritance to his younger brother. Now, my mom, who's here this morning, was a, a chief uh, loan officer in, in a bank for years. And I can remember her, of course, never divulging any private things, but coming home and saying, when, when it comes to inheritance conversations, um, polite people can get really ugly. Right. Um, and I think we've all seen this before. Um, and I should also say this from the standpoint of this parable, that I think it touches a nerve because if, as I was thinking through this parable, and of course parables can be read in multiple ways, but as I was thinking through this parable, I thought my sympathies are probably with the man in the crowd. I mean, few t- things can set our teeth on edge um, like a book or a movie where a figure in the novel or the movie is slighted by someone else in a position of power. We, we love stories and we love uh, movies where the bad guy has a moment of, and here's a great uh, southern word, right? Comeuppance, right? <laughs> he had it coming. Um, I'm not proud of this, and I and and uh, so I'm sorry, but I, but my wife made me watch all of Breaking Bad. Um, it wasn't I didn't want to. She forced me to watch all of it. Um, it's not wholesome, but you know I wanted to you know mutual submission and all of that. Um, so uh, we, we and, and maybe you have not seen that, um, and I for your soul's sake maybe you should not, um, but. Part of the underlying narrative of Breaking Bad with Walter White, um, who was this, you know the story, and you don't, Fran, you don't know me. Um, you're a godly woman, I knew this. Um, 
Um, you know, Walter White, he's a, he's a, he, he's a high school chemistry teacher who lives, you know, in, in, in a, in a suburb of, of, uh, sort of lower middle class folks out in the, in the, uh, in the West. And, um, he finds out that he has cancer and then all of a sudden he becomes, um, finds out that his, his gifts of chemical engineering can be used to make the best methamphetamine that's been made in that area ever. So he becomes this, he, he's Mr. Uh, Mr. Chips who turns into the godfather, right? I mean, it's, it's incredible to see this sort of metamorphosis over time. But there's an underlying narrative throughout all of Breaking Bad with Walter White, and that is, in time, you realize he was slighted by his two friends from college. They had started a, a business together, and they were leaning on Walter White's chemical engineering genius. And with some sort of sleight of hand, they worked it in such a way that they bumped him out of the company. They took his own ideas from him. He trusted them. They were his friends, but they took his ideas and they bumped him out. They worked him out legally in such a way and they became multimillionaires while he's teaching chemistry at the local high school, making methamphetamine in an RV out in the middle of the desert, right? This is incredible. And if you've seen this and followed it, you remember that one of the last scenes in the last episode of Breaking Bad, Walter White has a little encounter uh, with his two friends, chemist friends, who took his ideas and, and ran with it. And if you're a sinner like me, you loved every minute of it. Right. <laughs> so what, what's my point here? My point here is there, there is likely a kind of message of power um, that's at play here that Jesus certainly could have leaned into. And He will lean into it in other places as well. People who abuse their positions of power, especially the Pharisees and those who, who are the adjudicators of the law. We just see that back in chapter 11. Jesus will lean into this particular problem without any batting of the eye, but He's not doing it here. Um, why? Because Jesus, as He always seems to do, redirects this young man's question to another matter. The man in the crowd wants to talk about the injustice that's been done to him. Jesus wants to talk to this man about the pitfalls of covetousness and greed. Can I quote Jesus? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, let me say a few things about this parable. And then we'll turn to Luther and... Augustine. Number one, I do believe that this parable is straightforward in its fundamental teaching. Its fundamental meaning lies right on the literary surface of the text itself. Notice we don't have to sort of plunge into some allegorical or metaphorical depth to get at what Jesus is talking about here. What is this parable about? It's about greed, covetousness, and the potential idolatry of our possessions. Now, I have to say, I do believe that there is a kind of subtle Jeremiah going on here about the hoarding of wealth without a spirit of generosity. Just read later on in the chapter and you can get into that. But this here is speaking directly about um, greed, covetousness, and potential idolatry when it comes to our wealth. Now, I'm going to say this as an aside and not just because we're here. Um, but I don't believe there's a kind of soft Marxist tendency here in Jesus, a kind of leveling against the wealthy just because they're wealthy. I don't say that. I think this is important. I realize that these are complex matters, but the father in the parable of the prodigal son, this is why I want you to see these two in, in contradiction or, or in relation to one another, he's obviously a wealthy uh, man as well 
who throws a party, and this is so fascinating, and I hate to go Greeky on you here, but in, in the sort of original language, very similar terms are used to describe these words here. Listen to this. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Right? So that's what, this is what the, 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 the rich fool is doing here. And the father at the end of the prodigal son is saying very similar terms. Let's be merry. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. So uh, the party that the father throws, if I can put it in, in our modern terminology, that the party that the father throws in Luke 15, it's opulent. Um, it's worth celebrating in those moments. So I don't think that it, with Jesus here, there's any subtle uh, wagging of the head that it was inappropriate for the father to spend this kind of expense for this kind of celebration that we see in Luke 15. Um, we live under the club. Uh, in the south side. Um, and it happened just last night with regularity as we move into the summer um, where fireworks will go off. Um, our first our, our first uh, uh, week in our house moving from Pelham into the city, we knew nothing about this. It shows what <laughs> suburbanized we were. So we we're moving into the city now and we live in the Five Points area and all of a sudden... These, we didn't know these fireworks are going off on the top of Red Mountain. I thought, you know, Red Dawn was breaking out, you know, on, you know, I didn't know what I told, I, I remember looking at it, get the kids, get down. Uh, what's going on? And it was, just, it was, I mean, it's silly, but it's like fire, now it's, but, but last night up there in Red Mountain, the fireworks go off. We would get them all the time, uh, right there at the club. And, and you know what's going on up there? Someone just got married. Um, and some father uh, spent an exorbitant amount of money. <laughs> this is in the I didn't have them in my notes. I, I, I talked to one of the Beeson graduates. Is a, was a minister at First Baptist Trustville, and that that church would would host the Fourth of July celebration in Trustville, and they would do the they would they would pay for the fireworks as a kind of evangelistic outreach to the city of Trustville. So we're sitting over and talking, and he said he said Mark, you want to know how much that costs? I'm like, yes, I do. Um, he said, a thousand dollars a minute. <laughs> so I'm up there. That's what I'm thinking. I've got a little girl, right? I'm just there looking. Fire going off, kind of three thousand, four thousand, right? Um, and I think, you know, if you have the funds to do, celebrate it. It's okay, right? I mean, that's great. Um, now I would say. You know, to any of my children, if we're going to invest in fireworks, you can never get divorced. I mean, I would say that. But, you know, this, is, I, you're, this, this can't happen. But anyway, this is aside. So the point is, I don't think Jesus um, is, is, is doing a kind of Marxist leveling of the classes because people are bad just because they're wealthy. Jesus is laid to rest in a benefactor's tomb. We need to remember that. So what's going on here if it's not this kind of semi-Marxist reading against the wealthy. It's an internal conversation about the soul. Look at verse 19 again. So I will say to my soul, relax. Everything's okay now. My security and my confidence comes from the numbers that I see in my 401k. And this is most certainly a matter of the heart. Because I have to imagine that people's security is, when it comes to financial matters, is measured by a whole wide array of differences at a place like the Advent. But that's not the point. 
Whether you're saying, if I only had this number in the bank account, I'd sleep better tonight. Or if you'd only say, I'd have this number, I'd sleep better tonight. It doesn't matter. Jesus is not giving financial planning lessons here. Jesus is addressing our hearts and what provides for us ultimate security. I can hear my own dad who would say this to me again and again about possessions. And I wish I was more like my father when it comes to possessions. He's, he's a good model to me. He would always say things like, well, are you going to take any of that with you? No. Whose will they be? God asked this rich fool. Naked we come into this world and naked we will go out. So whether in this room you feel like you're wealthy, and by the way, I think from a global perspective, we know this is relative, we're all wealthy, or you're just scraping by, Jesus wants us to know in this parable that treasures amassed, whether you have them, I think this is a beautiful way of putting this here, thinking through these topics, whether you have them or whether you fantasize about having them like the man in the crowd, they provide false security for your soul. I mean, I don't even know, I can't even begin to plumb the depths of what Jesus means when he says this, but this last phrase that he doesn't explain, I wish he would. But being rich towards God. I mean, what a great phrase. Um, so so what, what does it mean to be rich towards God here when it comes to our possessions and our wealth? Well, let me talk to Augustine with you this morning, and then Luther, and then we'll be done. All right? You've heard me talk about this before, but I, I think Augustine's great legacy, or at least that's a reduction, one of Augustine's greatest legacies um, in the life of the church is his helping us think through what it means to be really happy. Um, because that is a question that has troubled philosophers throughout all generations up into our current moment in time as well. What does it really mean to be happy? And, of course, Augustine talks deeply about the infinite capacity of our souls to desire God and that God alone can fill that. So what does it mean to be happy? It means to live, not like Aristotle would say, into the virtuous habituation of living between the extremes. That's Aristotle's guide, guidebook for, um, for happiness. That's, that's how one lives into happiness there. Live in the mean. Live in a kind of balanced way between two opposing extremes. Augustine says the ultimate good is not the virtuous life. The ultimate good is God. And everything else is a use toward that end. And this is the danger, right, that we all live in and will not escape until we meet our glorified selves. Okay, The danger that we live in is moving those uses, the goods that God gives us in this life, and turning them into ends. And by the way, that can happen with anything that comes into our lives that we find joy in or that we see as a gift or something that's good. Anything from the silliness of, I've already missed, of Little League Baseball to your financial hopes to what dreams you attach to your children and mine. I mean, we, we, can, we can make idols out of anything. And when the good things that God gives us become ends, things have gotten all out of whack. And this is where Augustine would say, I think this is kind of what Jesus is getting at when he says being rich towards God is recognizing that all of these possessions and the good gifts that we have in this world, they are gifts that are given to us ultimately for the enjoyment of God and the benefit of others as well. Here's a second thing from Luther in his larger catechism. I want to read this to you because, again, I think this might help exposit for us what it means to be rich towards God. 
And this is how Luther gives um, the catechetical answer to the first commandment, do not have any other gods before me. I bet Gil could quote this by heart. Go ahead, Gil. Just tease him. (laughs) Here's the answer. Thou shalt have and worship me alone as thy God. This is Luther's exposition of the first commandment, having no other gods before before me. What is the force of this, Luther asks, and how is it to be understood? What does it mean to have a God? Or, what is God? That's the question. Here's the answer. A God means that from which we are to expect all good, and to which we are to take refuge in all our distress, so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in Him from the whole heart. As I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone, now listen to this, make both God and an idol. I want to back up and I'm going to read that one more time. As I have often said, confidence and faith of the heart alone, they make for both God and an idol. This is what Jesus is getting at in this parable here. Where is your confidence? Where is your security? What do you hang your hat on eternally? Luther continues, If your faith and trust be right, then your God is also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, if you're with the rich fool who says, now I can relax because I've got it all sorted out. My soul is fine because I've sorted everything out for myself. If that's what it is, then you do not have a true God. For these two belong together faith, and God. That now, I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. If we could sort of reduce, I think in a helpful way, what this parable about is in Luke chapter 12 with the rich fool. The question I think Jesus is wanting to ask is, where are you putting your faith? So, Lord, um, thank you for a parable like this that, um, Lord, gets personal. It's really personal. Um, I, I know my own struggles in this area deeply. Uh, and if any sense in here has come from some sort of platform of, of uh, confidence and security in this conversation, oh, Lord, let it not be. This, this is an area that touches all of us deeply. Um, because we pine for things to make us happy yearn for it, Lord. And we're, we become like children so often just looking for what's the next thing to bring us the pleasure that we so desperately want. And, and here you are, Jesus, again in our living room telling us that we really want to be rich toward you. And it's in the richness toward you, in faith and hope in you, because we know we'll meet you someday. Like we heard in the sermon, we're going to be fishing in an ocean someday, but right now we're in a glass jar. Lord, let us, by your grace, see that. And open us to that truth, Lord, that our faith and our confidence comes ultimately from you and is on you because of what you've done for us in your Son. And how that, Lord, gives us genuine freedom. We want to be a free people, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. 
If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.